You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to consider this question. What does it mean to be wise? What does it mean for someone to be wise? And then secondly, begin to think this with me. How would someone prove or demonstrate that they are, in fact, wise? On October 29th, just a, a few weeks ago, a group of Michigan State football players surrounded and assaulted a helmetless University of Michigan player after the Wolverines beat the Spartans 29-7. Did you all see this? The fight took place in the tunnel that leads from the field into the locker rooms. Last I checked, four Michigan State players have been suspended and a formal investigation has started. Now, while such actions are completely unacceptable, they are not surprising. And you know why? Because the University of Michigan and Michigan State are fierce rivals. They just don't hate each other. They loathe each other. And they aren't the only ones, are they? Right? We... We live in a world of rivals, do we not? Right? UK versus U of L, Auburn versus Alabama, Coke versus Pepsi, <laughs> PC versus Max, Ohio State versus Michigan. To, to Basil's disbelief, yes, I do have a sister named Andrea. And her husband, Brian, is a huge, huge Michigan fan. He, he not only hates Michigan State, but he also cannot stand Ohio State. In fact, he hates Ohio State so much that he will not allow any of his four children to wear red and gray at the same time. Now, it's, as funny as that might sound, I'm quite sure certain many of you perhaps have your own stories about a family member or a friend who has done something outrageous because of some deep, intense rivalry, right? We live in a world of rivalries. And you know what, at least to me, seems impossible? You know what seems impossible to me? that any of those Michigan and Michigan State football players who got in that fight, it seems impossible to me that any of those guys would ever speak to each other again, let alone become friends. Right? The hatred and the hostility just goes too deep. I mean, to have them to be friends... Those, those players, I mean, to have that rivalry and those guys become friends, what kind of miracle would that be? A miracle of God. A miracle of God, that's right. 
This morning, we're going to be studying the second half of Ephesians 2. And in this passage, you know what Paul describes? He describes a deep, complex, and ancient rivalry. However, it's not between two athletic teams. No, the ancient rivalry Paul mentions is between Jews and Gentiles. A rivalry, friend, far greater than we find in sports. In his commentary of Ephesians, William Barclay writes this. He said, The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. He goes on. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of the Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. You know, having one of your kids not wear gray and red at the same time, that's one thing. But having a funeral, if your Jewish son marries a Gentile, that's in another category, right? Indeed, I want to argue that this is one of the greatest, deepest, and most hostile rivalries the world has ever known. The ancient one between Jew and Gentile. That the hatred between Jews and Gentiles makes the Hatfield and McCoys look like best friends. So why does Paul mention this ancient rivalry that was so strong when he wrote Ephesians? Well, friend, he does so because God has done something about this rivalry that he wants everyone to see. Indeed, he's done something about this rivalry so that we might learn something very important about him. And what is it that God wants us to know about him? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. It's page 976 in that paperback Bible. For the next several weeks, we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. However, this morning, we're just going to start and focus in on the first two verses, 11 and 12. So follow along with me and your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians 2, verses, one, or verses 11 excuse me, through 12. The Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants 
of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. In 1997, Tiger Woods was selected as the Male Athlete of the Year by the Associated Press. At only 21 years old, Tiger achieved the number one world ranking in only his 42nd week as a professional golfer, becoming the youngest golfer ever to do so. That year, he won the Masters Tournament, setting a 72-hole course record. He went on to win an additional four PGA Tour events that season and was the leading money winner on tour that year. Well, after his historic Masters win, Tiger and his father, Earl Woods, were interviewed by Oprah on her TV show. And during the interview, Oprah asked Earl, she said, you know, your, your son is, he's part Asian, he's part black. She said, growing up, tell me, how did you raise your son? She said, what race did you teach him that he belonged to? You know what Earl said? He looked at Oprah and said, the human race. To which everyone applauded. And you know what? Rightly so. You see, Faith, Earl stated a biblical truth that is sadly lost today. And you know what that truth is? It's this, and that is, there is only one race, the human race. And why is this important? It's important because our world today makes unbiblical divisions. Notice what Paul says there in verse 11. How does he start this section? Look at what he says. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh of hands. You know what Paul is doing in this verse? He's dividing the world. And he's dividing the world into two groups. Gentiles in the flesh and the circumcision, who are the Jews. This is a biblical, God-ordained distinction. And this is more important than you might think. You know why? Because first, it affirms that distinctions do matter and that divisions do exist. But then secondly, it corrects our culture's errant distinctions. Because like Oprah, you know what we do? When we talk about distinctions from one another, we speak in terms of our race, don't we? However, race is actually a social construct. You will not find the idea of races in the Bible, unless you find it in its proper historical context where we see that we all are of the race of Adam. Amen? One race, 
one blood, we are all of the race of Adam. In fact, we're not really even different colors. Technically, from a biochemistry perspective, we're all actually the same color. Our color comes from our melanin. We've all got melanin just to differing degrees. So it's not that some of us are this color and some of us are that color. No, we're just different shades of the same color. Some of us have more melanin than others. You see, Faith, the racial categories that are so common today and that our culture is obsessed with are artificial. They are not biblical. Indeed, they're not even genetic in nature. Yet there is one real distinction in Scripture, and that is between Gentiles and Jews. And you know who made that distinction, that division? God. And please hear me, it's a covenantal distinction, not a racial one. And you know how I know that? Because the first Jew had to become one. (laughs) He was of the same ethnicity and race, if you will, as the rest of his kinfolk. Listen, God didn't say to Abraham, look Abraham, be still. I'm about ready to change you at the genetic level so that your descendants will be genetically different from all the other descendants. This might hurt a little bit. No. No. He made an external adjustment, circumcision. Please hear me. The Jew-Gentile divide is not a genetic one. It can't be. It's covenantal. And why is this important? It's important because one of the biggest challenges facing the church today is the pressure to believe and allow man-made categories to divide us. Yet texts like this challenge us to stop believing such lies. But then secondly and most importantly, this covenantal distinction addresses the real problem we all face. All of us. You know what that is? Well, verse 12 tells us. This morning, we're going to focus the majority of our time in just one verse, and that's Ephesians 2.12. Because you know what Paul does in this verse? He gives the first imperative or command of this book. You know what that is? Remember. In this passage, Paul wants the Christian to remember who they once were before God saved him or her. As several commentators have pointed out, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, they almost mirror Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul in this passage is showing the believer who they once were in regards to the unfolding drama of salvation history. However, friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, what, we're, what we just read and what we're going to study, this is not a description of your past, but it is a portrait of your present. And notice what we learned first. 
Paul calls us to remember first your past separation from God's Son. Look again there at verses 11 and 12. He's speaking to Christians. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's one group of people called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of Jewish hands. That's referring to the Jewish. Now that that phrase actually, uh, which is made by the flesh of hands, is not an insignificant phrase. In the Old Testament, that phrase is always used to describe and associate with idols and idol worship. It's the use of human hands to construct something not from God. It's also used in a very similar way in the New Testament. And and it's clear here that Paul is hinting at what he, he makes explicit elsewhere, and that is circumcision done in the body by the hands of men is not the real circumcision God wants or looks for. The circumcision God requires is a cleansing of the heart, and that can only take place by the work of the Spirit. More on that later. So he says, there, one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning the Jews are calling you that, which was made in the flesh by hands. And then he says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. Uh, last week, or two weeks ago, we were in Southern California for my nephew's wedding, and we had a really wonderful time. Now, when we fly off to California, we typically fly southwest, and lately my kids have really enjoyed the flights because not only do they get snacks and beverages, but also Wi Fi to watch movies on the plane. Well, our flight back home to Louisville, it had a connection through Denver, about a two-hour layover. However, once we boarded the plane in California to head back, we just sat at the gate for 45 minutes. Uh, evidently, one of the engines failed its pre-flight check. Okay? So we sat there for 45 minutes. After another 30 minutes, a representative comes into the plane at the front, grabs the microphone, and begins calling people off the plane who are going to miss their connection in Denver. Yet, strangely enough, he doesn't mention anyone going to Louisville. So being the responsible father and husband that I am, I go up to the guy in the front, I go, excuse me, sir, I said, I know you're pulling people off of the connections. I said, we've been delayed. Our flight from Denver to Louisville takes off at 8 o'clock Right now, we're not scheduled to get into Denver until 8.30. It's like, I assure you, sir, all the Louisville passengers are taken care of. We booked you on a later flight that evening out of Denver. And I looked at my phone, even though there were no flights leaving Denver later. But I took the guy at his word. We sit there for another half an hour, and again, the guy comes back down, calls more people off the plane who are going to miss the connections, and then this time, they begin to close the doors. So this time I run up to the front and I say, well, well, what about the Louisville passengers? And I'll never forget that it's the representative. He leaves the plane to go up the runway. He looks back at me and he's like, you're going to have 10 minutes to make your connection. You're going to have to run your gate. Closes the door. (laughs) Okay. So we eventually landed in Denver, hurried off the plane, 
We ran to our gate, and guess what? We missed the flight. It had already left. We had been cut off from our connections. Has that ever happened to any of you before? Hopefully not, okay? Almost. Listen, in that moment, at gate C11 in Denver, we were excluded from the benefits and the privileges of that flight. It, it left without us. We were cut off. That meant no snacks, no beverages, no free Wi-Fi. But you know what the worst part was? Being cut off from that flight meant we would not reach the destination. Notice Paul says that we at one time, Gentiles, we were separated from Christ. We were cut off. Now think for a moment about what that means in light of what we've learned in Ephesians chapter 1. What does Paul write in Ephesians 1.3? He says, and he goes on in chapter 1, that in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, a glorious inheritance, the sin of the Holy Spirit, all in Christ. Indeed, what did we learn in the first part of chapter 2? God made us spiritually alive in Christ, right? We've been raised with Christ. We've been seated with Christ. However, what Paul, Paul is saying, listen, we weren't always on that plane, if you will. No, we were cut off from all the blessings that come from being united with Christ. And like my family at Gate C11 in Denver, the most devastating consequence of being cut off from Christ is that we will not reach the destination we want to go to, and that's eternity with God in heaven. Pastor and author Eric Alexander captured it best. He says, The real horror of being outside of Christ is that there's no shelter from the wrath of God. And I wonder, is that true of you this morning? Friend, are you outside of Christ? Is what I'm describing not your past, but your present? Friend, please hear me. Scripture is clear. There is a coming storm of God's judgment. You and I, we are all accountable to God for our actions. And Scripture clearly teaches that the wages of our sin earns us something, and that is death and judgment and punishment from God in hell for all eternity. Are you cut off? Are you separate from Christ? Friend, consider your condition. And Christian, consider who you once were. You weren't on that plane. You were cut off from Christ. But not only that, Paul goes on to say, but you're also separated from God's promises. Look at that middle phrase in verse 12. It says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated 
from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Cut off from God's, from the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's Son, and separated from God's promises. Uh, earlier this year, I told my dad and my brother Todd and my nephew Jake about an idea I had to bless my three sons. The plan was to take my three sons to a Chicago Blackhawks game with each of them as well. So all seven of us would be there. However, my sons didn't find out about this until the day of the game. It was, it was a surprise and we had a great time. But you know what? It took a lot of planning Yet while I constantly was speaking to my dad, speaking to Todd, speaking to Jake, working out the details of how we could make this plan happen to bless my sons, my sons were completely in the dark about it. This is to say, please hear me, although I made a promise to bless my sons, the promise wasn't made to them. It was made to my dad, Jake, and Todd. Notice Paul states that believers were at one time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, the covenants of promise. You see, as, as we study the pages of Scripture, it is clear that God had promised to bless the nations. However, the blessing wasn't, to come, wasn't going to be going to a hockey game. No, God had promised to bless the nations through His Messiah, through Christ. And just like my promise was made to my dad, Todd and Jake, and not my sons, so too God's promise to bless the nations through Christ was made to the Jews and not the Gentiles. This is what Paul means when he says that Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. God's promise to bless the nations was given to the Jews, not the Gentiles. You see, friend, we are, all of us, we are sinners by nature and by choice. Sin is not just something that we do, it's in our nature. Think of it like this. We are like rag dolls that have been soaked in the gasoline of sin and God is a consuming fire. Do you see the problem? This is really bad news for us. So what hope do we have to escape the judgment for our sin? Well, the good news is God has made a way for sin-soaked people like you and me to escape His coming judgment and forgiveness of sin and have forgiveness of sin. And God has revealed His plan to save sinners through the covenants of Scripture. This is why Paul calls them the covenants of promise. Covenants of promise, why? Because they disclose how God is going to save and reconcile sinful people to himself. And, and think about our study of First and Second Samuel. What did we learn in Second Samuel 7? God's covenant with David. We learned in that covenant that all of God's saving promises will be fulfilled in David's true son, whom the New Testament identifies as the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here is simply highlighting how Gentiles 
we're strangers to God's one plan of salvation to bless the nations. They were like my sons. Gentiles, we were like my sons, completely unaware of all that God had been doing to make it happen. So as Gentiles, we were once separated from God's Son, God's promises, and ultimately notice what Paul says, God himself. Look at how verse 12 ends. It says, remember that you are at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope. I wonder if this is true of some of you this morning. Friend, do you feel hopeless? Do you feel depressed and despondent? If so, based on the authority of God's Word, I can tell you why. It's because you're living your life apart from God. It's no accident that Paul connects hopelessness with separation from God. I mean, why wouldn't that be so? As both our Creator and our Redeemer, God is the source of everything we need. Yet sadly, many of us choose to live our lives not simply apart from Him, but in rebellion against Him. We know we're accountable to God. We know we are to live for Him and rather than ourselves. Yet, instead of submitting to Him as the rightful King in our lives, we commit cosmic treason by instead choosing to live for ourselves. And friend, you know where that path leads? Hopelessness. And I wonder, is that true of you this morning? Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, please consider your state. As a Gentile, you are separated from God's Son, God's promises, and God Himself. No wonder you feel hopeless. Friend, please hear me. In every sense imaginable, you are far off. However, Ephesians 2 doesn't end here. Look at what Paul writes next in verses 13 through 16. And to be clear, in this next section, again, Paul is speaking to Christians. Listen to what he says. Okay? He wants us to remember who we once were, and then he says, but now. Very similar to, to verse 4 of chapter 2, but God, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentile who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Notice, and here's the purpose, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God, both the Jew and the Gentile he's referring to, we both need to be reconciled to God, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let me go back to the question we started with. How would someone demonstrate that they are wise and that they have wisdom? I believe, and I want to argue, the answer is found in our text. And you know what that is? The demonstration of wisdom is by reconciling two hostile groups and making them one. And friend, that's precisely what God has done through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? This passage is arguably the single most important passage about the church in the entire New Testament. And it's not hard to see why. Because Paul's main point in Ephesians 2, verses 11, all the way down to verses 22, is this profound truth, and that is, the blood of Christ makes the church one new man. The blood of Christ makes one new man. The blood of Christ just doesn't bring us near to God. It just doesn't bring us near to one another. No, it does something even greater than that. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. The blood of Christ makes us one new man. John Christostom, the great preacher of the early church, he said this, commenting on this verse. It is as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead put them into a forge, and they came out a statue of gold. They not only have become one, they have become better. And friend, this is what God has accomplished through the blood of His Son. And why has God done this? I want to suggest it's very clear. Paul tells us a few verses later down in verse chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. In that passage, Paul states that he's been called to preach this mystery, this mystery of God reconciling Jews and Gentiles, making them one new man in Christ. And here's the reason why Paul writes this. I'm going to throw it on the screen. He says, So that through the church, the manifold what? Wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God took the most hostile, deep rivalry at the time of this writing, and through Christ, He's brought them together, made them new creations, and now one new man in Christ to demonstrate that God is wise. He is glorious and wise in all his ways. This is why we've entitled this series God's Glory Displayed Through the Church. 
It is here in the church that God has chosen to prove and showcase His great glory and wisdom and reconciling sinners to Himself and to each other, thus creating one new better man, all through the blood of Christ. Now, this truth that the blood of Christ makes the church one new man has many implications. But let me just speak to one. Earlier we established that biblically there's only one race, the human race. We do not have different races, but we do have different ethnicities. That is, we do have some cultural distinctions among us. But a cultural distinction is very different from the erroneous claim today that we are separated by race. And why is this important? Because if the blood of Jesus can obliterate a real distinction that God himself has created, Jew and Gentile, then how much more can it get rid of artificial distinctions that fallen men create? And here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we honor this reality that the blood of Christ makes us one new man? Do we honor this reality or do we undermine it by constantly making artificial, man-made distinctions preeminent in church. What's most important about me and what's most important about you is not the color of your skin. It's not the ancestry or the heritage of your ancestors or your income level or your biological sex. The most important thing about us here in the church, is that all of us, at one time, we were far. But by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near, we've been made new creations, and we are now one new man in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Someone? Through Christ, we are one. That's the greatest thing about us. We're now a child of God. But can I ask, friend, is that true of you? Are you a child of God? Next week, we're going to look closely at verses 13 through 16 and consider how the blood of Christ has made us one new man. But you know what? Tomorrow is not promised. And some of you right now need to know what you must do to be brought near to God. As I'm saying these very words, the Spirit of God is at work in your heart and you feel the weight of your guilt and it is almost unbearable. You do feel hopeless. And friend, if that's, if that's true of you this morning, please hear the good news of this passage. The good news of this passage is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. He shed His blood on the cross so you wouldn't have to. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God. You are owed for your sins. 
Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and proving himself to be the Son of God, saving all who would trust in him. Friend, have you done that? Have you gone all in, turning from your sin, trusting in Christ? If not, I would plead with you, let today be the day of salvation for you. Salvation is received, not achieved. Jesus achieved it for us. We receive it by faith alone. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in God. Become a new creation in Him and part of the one new man, the church. Amen? Let's pray.